Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 25 this morning as we continue our look at at this, uh, uh, this book of the Bible. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Father, thank you now to, uh, for this opportunity to continue worshiping you. We have worshiped you in song and we've worshiped you in giving and now we worship you in your word. Um, thank you for this g- gift that you have given to us that we might learn a little bit about ourselves, that we might learn a little bit about how you would like us to live, how you've created us to live, that we might learn about um, what Christ has done for us, that we might learn about life. Thank you for these living words. Uh, again, we ask it as we think about them that, that you would make them live in our hearts, O oh Lord that you would um, uh, reveal in us those areas that uh, you want to build us up in and those areas that you would like us to change. To this end, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last week, we, we dealt with uh, the first, uh, well, verses 17 to 25, and if we could sum them up in any particular way, it, it might be simply this, we are to be different. We are to be different as Christians. That uh, we are born again, we are new creatures in Christ Jesus, we have Christ living in us, and therefore we are to be different, and we've got to kill those lizards that are on our shoulders. Uh, This week, I want to talk about how we might dress. There is that TV show that I've seen the odd time, um, What Not to Wear. Well, we might call this What Not to Wear as a Christian, and How to Dress as a Christian. And it'll make sense to you as we get moving a little bit farther on. Uh, In these passages of Scripture, you might uh, notice as we read them how intensely practical they are. They are the tough stuff of life. They are where the rubber hits the road. They are, in a nutshell, um, the process that we call, and the Bible is full of this word, the process of sanctification. Sanctification is that process whereby God makes us increasingly into His likeness. It's something that we cooperate in. I I was trying to think of an illustration or example, and we might call it an apprenticeship. It's a lifelong apprenticeship of learning what it is now to be a saint. Um, uh, And so as we become a Christian, the process of sanctification is learning to become a saint. It's learning the trade of sainthood, so to speak. And sanctification is not in any way something that contributes to our salvation, Our salvation is a matter that's done with on the cross of Jesus Christ. 
When Christ died for us and when we put our faith and trust in him, we were saved. We contribute nothing to that. We add nothing to that. That's why Jesus on the cross said it is finished because the work of salvation was done. So sanctification does not add to our salvation. It does not make us any more saved. What it does is it is part of that process whereby we become now like the God who saved us. We become created in his image. And there's a couple of things that I think are helpful to to say about this process before we look at the the examples that Paul gives us. First of it, first of all is is this process of sanctification, this apprenticeship that we're in needs to be properly balanced. Paul uses the the words you might have noticed to put off and to put on. We need to um, displace old sinful habits and patterns and we need to replace them with new habits and patterns, with Christ-likeness. It's very much like getting dressed and getting undressed uh, um, in, our, in the course of our day. At the end of the day, we generally take off our dirty clothes. We put them in the laundry hamper, unless you want to wear them for two or three days. But then the next morning, you get up and you put on cl- clean clothes. You, you take off and you put on. It would be very strange, would it not be, if the starting point was dirty clothes. And so we all, at the end of the day, we have dirty clothes. That's how we all are as Christians. We, 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 we start with a pair of dirty clothes. And if we um, never changed those dirty clothes, we wouldn't have a whole lot of people that would be around us for too long because it would just detract from our likableness, I guess, if you could put it that way. Uh, and so you don't continue to wear dirty clothes. However, if, if, if you simply took off your dirty clothes and never replaced them, then we would have a trouble. You would be naked and ashamed. And so you don't just simply wear your dirty clothes all the time, nor do you just take off your dirty clothes and not replace them. By the same token, when you put on clean clothes, you don't put them on top of dirty clothes. You, you, if you did that, It wouldn't be long before those clean clothes became dirty and you'd look like the Michelin man. You wouldn't be able to move because you would have so many clothes on. So there is this process that just as we go through in our physical lives of taking off our dirty clothes at the end of the day and putting on clean clothes in the morning, so as a Christian, we need to get into this habit of at the end of the day taking off our dirty clothes and in the morning putting on clean clothes. And so this process of sanctification necessarily requires a proper balance, taking off and putting on. The second thing is sanctification is very, very practical. It's practical obedience. As we go through these things, we will realize that when we become a Christian, as we are made into the likeness and image of God, it deals with stuff like how we think. It deals with the words that come out of our mouths. It deals with what we do with our hands and our feet, literally. It deals with the emotions that we feel. It deals with the attitudes and the actions of our heart. And so when we talk about this process of sanctification, it's not some airy-fairy thing that, that, that is just all in our mind. It involves how we think, how we speak, how we act, where we go, what we use our hands and feet for, what we look at with our eyes. Every part of our body is involved in this process of sanctification. And then thirdly, this is, I think, one of the most important things. Well, they're all important. This is critical as well. Is that this process of sanctification, becoming more like Christ, is most perfectly worked out in relationships. 
In other words, the process of sanctification does not go very well if you live by yourself and you never have contact with any other human beings. That's why, again, why I say it's so important that when you become a Christian, you find a body of believers and you associate with them and you attach to them because that is how you're going to become better. That is how you'll make the next person better. As I've said last week, I think it was in marriage. That's one of the greatest tools of sanctification is marriage because you're working out the relationship together. And so when we think about the body of Christ, if you choose to avoid the body of Christ, then you ignore one of the most important aspects of sanctification in your life, of this apprenticeship process of becoming more and more like Christ. As we think about these things then that we're going to talk about, I I want you to think about them in three zones, and, and I'll just leave you to make the applications up in your life. There is intense application for us personally. There is, I think, very clear application for our marriages and for our homes. These things would transform our marriages and our relationships with our children. And thirdly, to think about them in context of the body of Christ gathered together, of believers together in a group. And so the first thing that we look at as we, as we look at these things that Paul gives us, and remember, it's in the context of, 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 of taking off dirty clothes and putting on clean clothes. And when I talk about that, I, I, you know, sometimes we think as Christians we can lose our salvation. I am one that with the right context and the right understanding that we can't lose our salvation, but we get dirty. Do you remember when Jesus washed the, uh, the disciples' feet? He came to Peter, and Peter says, No, don't just wash my feet. Wash all of me. And Jesus said, No, no. The one who has had a bath just needs to have his feet cleaned. You see, when we go out and walk as a Christian, we don't always get it right, do we? Sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we sin. Sometimes we don't do what God wants us. That doesn't mean we lose our salvation. It just means that we're dirty. We need to confess and repent. And then we start putting on clean clothes again. And so as we think about this, what, is the, what are the clothes that we are to wear? And what are we not to wear? The first thing that Paul says is truth must replace falsehood. Truth must replace falsehood. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. See, lying is very serious stuff. And we lie in so many ways. And one of the dangerous things about lying, if, that it, is, if it is an ongoing habitual problem for which we don't seem to be getting better at, or we don't seem to be getting truth in our life, then, then, then that is a serious thing. Because what, what Jesus says when he's talking to some of the disciples, or some of the, the Pharisees, and, and they're not getting very far, Jesus says to them, "'You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires.'" He was a murderer from the beginning. He has nothing to do with truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So if we are consistently lying, habitually lying, and don't really care about it, that speaks then to possibly our character. And it speaks to our paternity. And further than that, it's such a serious thing that that at the end of Revelation... Um, John writes, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So lying is characteristic of our old nature. It's characteristic of the prince of this world. On the other hand, truth characterizes God. Isn't it say somewhere of God in, in Numbers that God is not a man that he should lie? 
And in the book of Hebrews, it says it is impossible for God to lie. And then we have Jesus, as he's speaking to his disciples, he says, I am the way, the falsehood, and the life. No, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth because he will lead us and guide us in all truth. And then, are we not being made in the likeness and image of God? So then, ought we not to be people of truth, who speak the truth, who are characterized by truth-telling? Can you ever think of a situation in which it would be justifiable for God to lie? Is there any point at which God could say, well, I need to shade the truth a little bit here. I need to exaggerate a little bit here. I need to, you know, because there's too much at stake here, so I need to lie. Well, in the same way, as we become more and more like God, the opportunities and options for us to lie necessarily become fewer and fewer and fewer. So he says, we are to be people of truth. We are to speak the truth. Why? And this is what I love. He gives reasons for all of this. And I think as parenting, this is one of the, one of the critical tools of parenting. Um, uh, that it's, it's not just enough to, to tell your kids why they can't do something and why they should do something else. What's really important is to give them the reason behind it so they understand what's the process, so they understand why that's wrong and why this is right. And so in the same way, Paul says, put on truth, take off falsehood, because we are members of the same body. In marriage, think about that. When you become married, you become one flesh. When you become Christians, you become part of the body of Christ. And you know that, that, and I'm not a doctor, but if your brain starts sending mixed signals to your body and starts telling your body that what is cold is hot and what is hot is cold, you're going to be in real trouble. And you know what happens with leprosy. Leprosy is one of those diseases which our body is not communicating truth. And so what happens over time is people's fingers and hands deform, their feet deform, their faces deform, because they aren't hearing the truth about their physical environment. And so they become disfigured and disformed. Well, in the same way, why do we need to put off lying and put on truth? Because we're members of the body. And when we lie, we disfigure and we disform the body. We disfigure and disform our relationship with our spouse. So Paul says, truth must be replaced with falsehood because we are members of one body. The second thing that he talks about there, so that's to do with our, our, uh, with with sort of our, our, our minds and with our tongues. The second thing, he deals with an emotion. And in, in this chapter, in these verses, there's 11 imperatives. Uh, Imperatives are commands. So you come to this one, and, and what he's saying is that anger that is righteous must replace anger that controls us. I think one of the the first thing that stuns us is he commands us to be angry. I think some of you are are maybe a little shocked at that because you think, no, anger is always wrong. There's never a place for anger. No, that's not what the Bible says anywhere. In fact, it says that God is angry in certain circumstances. It tells us that Christ is gets angry in certain circumstances. There is a legitimate response, a legitimate emotion, which is called anger. Anger in and of itself is not a sin. It is not a sin to be angry all the time necessarily. There are just causes for anger. 
The Bible speaks of these in a number of different places. In fact, one commentator I read, actually two that I read, one this morning, but one that I read through the week, John Stott, wrote this, right, writes this. He says, there is a great need in the contemporary world for more anger. Well, what is right anger? We should get rightly anger at sin. We should get rightly anger at injustice. We should get rightly angry when people take advantage of other people in harmful ways. That is justifiable anger. And there is a place for that in the life of a Christian. Because we are reflecting the image of God who himself is angry at sin. If God hates sin, so should we. It's, but, but what's hard for us is it's difficult to express our anger in a, in a Christ-like way because there's this, this remnant of the sinful nature within us. And so we need to understand this dimension. And so he gives us three kind of guidelines to our anger. First is a command, be angry. Loved ones, there is a place for anger in a marriage, in a home, in a church. But he says, very quickly, he follows up, be angry, and then a second command, and do not sin. See, you can sin in your anger. And that's, I think, what most of us feel and most of us know because we've had somebody who's lost their cool with us. We've had somebody who's said things they should never say to us. We've had somebody who's, who's, who's done things to us out of their own hurt and out of their own issues, not because there's justifiable anger there. And so anger that is selfish or passionate or undisciplined or uncontrolled is sinful. When we don't express our anger properly, it's sinful. And so we need to understand that as we, are, as we get angry, that we do not sin in our expression of that anger. And then the, the third thing that he says, he says, not only be angry, be angry and do not sin, but he says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, or do not let your sun go down on your anger. For many people, this means don't go to bed angry. And in fact, I, I bet you there's a, a lot of couples here who, who might say that one of their general rules of thumb is that um, uh, we're not going to go to um, bed angry or we're not going to go to sleep angry with each other. That's, I think, a good rule of thumb. I'm not convinced that that's what this text is saying. I'm not convinced it's always practical because you might be angry with your spouse and you're going on an overnight trip to China and you can't resolve the issue before the sun goes down. Or it might be a business partner that you're angry with and they're halfway across the country and you can't get together to, to make it right. So I think there's a, it's a general rule of thumb, but I'm not sure that that is exactly what Paul is getting at when he talks about here. This is the only place in the New Testament where this particular word for anger is used. And the intent is more this. Don't remain in a state of anger. Never go to sleep personally with an angry or bitter thought towards another person. When a particular event causes you to be angry, maybe justly, maybe rightly, when you are rightly indignant at something, make sure that you deal with that emotion of anger and you replace it with a proper emotion or you replace it with another emotion. In other words, don't let anger linger because that's when it becomes sinful. When we let our anger go and go and go and we don't resolve it or replace it. How, what do you, what do you, what do you replace your anger with? Well, sometimes you replace it with, with love. 
And you start thinking of love now towards that person or of compassion or of pity or you replace that anger of of emotion with the desire now to resolve the situation or with a longing for Christ to intervene. The, the, The truth of the matter is unrestrained, unlimited time frames on anger leads to retaliation, leads to bitterness, leads to revenge. And that is what Paul is saying here, I believe. He's saying, be angry. Don't sin in your anger. And when you are angry, be quick to replace it with now another emotion in its place. And, and, and the third thing that he says about it, then another command, and this is the reason, I think, behind it, is we don't want to give the devil a foothold. Be angry and give no opportunity for the devil. And I think this applies in both places. It applies in our own hearts. You know, those of you who have ever been angry, how if you don't deal with that anger, how it goes places pretty awful in a hurry. You start thinking mean thoughts. You start thinking slanderous thoughts. You start thinking how you can get even. And you give the devil an opportunity to crank you up in a situation. And the person who's the recipient of anger, the devil can get a foothold in their heart and close their hearts towards you. And so if anger is unresolved, if it's unrighteous anger, it gives the devil a foothold in our lives. And I think one of the things that it's probably getting at here is the word for the devil that's used here is slanderer. And I think when we don't resolve our anger properly, when we allow it to become sin, one of the easy errors it goes into is slander. And we, we tear down another person's reputation because we're mad at them. Or we, we speak in a way that we shouldn't speak towards a person. I read William Barclay this morning and he said, um, uh, many a reputation was destroyed over a cup of tea. I would probably say in our day, many a reputation has been destroyed at Starbucks. Because in our anger, we start speaking things that we should not speak and we slander people in our anger. So what Paul is saying, he's saying, figure out how to handle anger in your life. As a Christian, there is a place for anger in a marriage, in a church, in a home. But don't sin. Replace it with another emotion in a timely fashion. And do not give the devil an opportunity in your life. The third thing that he says there. So so that now is dealing with an emotion. Now he starts dealing with our hands and our feet. He says, let generosity replace theft. Let generosity replace theft replace theft. I don't know if we can get more practical when it talks about how we should live as a Christian and what it means to be a new creature in Christ Jesus than some of these things. We know that theft takes many, many different forms. And there is a massive amount of theft that takes place in our world today. We steal money. We steal property. We steal intellectual property. We steal time. We steal people. And, 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 and stealing is, is just part of our culture and part of our world. And there's a couple of things that struck me about this. First of all, the, the, it's another command. Um, do not steal any longer. So, and he's writing to a Christian context. So he's saying to Christians, stop stealing. Stop stealing. Let's be honest. And there's so many. Do you own all the videos in your home? Do you, do, do you own all the DVDs in your home? Do you do, own all the music that's on your phone? Do you own all the computer programs that are on your computer? That's just one tiny, tiny area of theft. 
But as Christians, that's, this is part of putting off. Sometimes we don't do so well. At the end of the day, we say, God, I'm sorry I stole that. We make it right, we confess, and we put on generosity. So stealing, he's writing, he's writing to Christians here. And he says to them, rather than stealing, work. And the word that he uses is work hard, labor, um, I read one commentator, and he tells of a survey's number that he read, which shows more middle-class young men are less inclined to work in positions of responsibility or finish college because undemanding jobs can provide them all they want. An apartment, a fast car, a flat-screen TV, and a willing partner. Paul says here, not only do not steal, but work hard. Work hard. And then the second thing that strikes me in this is just because we stop stealing doesn't mean that we have kept that commandment. See, the commandments have both a negative application, don't do this, and a positive application, do this. And so to stop stealing is part way of filling the commandment. But now he gives the reason why, and it's to fulfill the positive side of the commandment, which is generosity. See what he says here? Stop stealing, do honest work, so that you might have something to share with those who are in need. See, God never intended that we hoard our wealth. From time to time, I watch that, that show when they, where they're looking for houses or whatever it is. And, you know, they take them and they show them two or three different houses. And one of the things that really, I'm not picking on ladies, but um, one of the things that quickly draws their attention is the closet size. And sometimes they show existing closets, which are walk-in closets of massive magnitude, and there is not an inch of space in that closet. And the would-be house buyer looks at it and says, well, that's good, but I'm going to need more closet space than this. I'm not saying it's good or bad to have an overflowing closet. I think, though, what I'm saying is God never intended that we hoard our wealth. God never intended that we simply work to supply our own needs. This is sometimes not easy for us to say. God blesses us, loved ones, so that we might bless others. He blesses the work of our hands so that we might have something to give to those who don't have anything. One of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer is, Give us this day our daily bread. I think one of the ways in which that petition is met in another's life is exactly through this through the generosity of other Christians. That as we have excess, as we have bounty, we, we see someone need and we help them out. We give them some groceries. We provide them this. We send them that. We get them this. We share out of our excess. And in that way, they say, thank you, God, for providing my daily needs today. And so we are sometimes the very means through which God answers that prayer that somebody else is praying, give me my daily bread. Kath and I um, have tried to, uh, to, to, to give of our excess. And one thing we started doing about six months ago is we have an envelope system um, in our budget. And um, one of the envelopes now is, is simply um, a generosity envelope, a helping others envelope. And every paycheck, we take a certain amount of our paycheck and we put it in that envelope. And that's simply so that if we hear of a need, we see somebody in trouble, we'll just get them the money. We'll just, we'll just send it to them. We'll drop it off at the doorstep. We'll buy them something. But it's, it's just generosity money. And I hope that I see that envelope increasing and more and more and more. Because I think God enables us to work hard, not so we can have more stuff for ourselves, 
but so that we can share with others who are in need. And so that's what Paul says here. He says part of this transformation that takes place as you become a new creature in Christ is you stop stealing and you become generous. You reflect the generous heart of the Father. Uh, The fourth thing, which is, again, intensely practical, is he says the language of blessing is to replace the language of cursing. Now he's talking about our tongues. Our tongues, which, which we use every day in so many different ways. And he says this about our tongues. He says there, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Corrupting talk, the word corrupting means rotten. Um, it's a word that's used to describe rotten fruit that hangs on a tree or that's fallen to the ground. And none of us would pick up a piece of fruit like that and eat it. We wouldn't put it on our table or make a pie out of rotten apple pies. It's, it, it's not good for us. It's, it's not good for people who eat it. And so he says, let no rotten speech proceed from your mouth. It can include everything from profanity to obscenities. Uh, it, can, it, can, it, can be, it can be bad jokes. It can be filthy talk. It can be gossip. It can be slander. It can be malice. If our words do not build up, if they're not fitting, if they don't ooze grace, then Paul says they're better, and better left unsaid. This is part of the transformation that takes place as a Christian takes off his dirty clothes and puts on his new ones as we begin to talk differently. Good for building up. To build up just means to encourage. It means to comfort. It means uh, the opposite is to tear down, to discourage. And so in your marriage, in your homes, in the church, um, what's that song, Never Discouraging Word is Heard? I can't remember. What, what, what was Home on the range. That's right. Thank you. So, so we should be lone rangers, I guess, or home range Christians, where never a discouraging word is heard. Building up one another. And the second thing that he says, not only should our speech build up, and think about that in your marriage, or with your kids, or in the church. How, how would that help? And then the second thing, good, or good speech is fitting speech. Do you know that there is a right time, or, or do you know that there is a right time and place to say things? Sometimes we can say the right things at the wrong times. It just doesn't fit in that particular context. Sometimes we can say the right thing in the wrong way. It doesn't fit in the particular context. Uh, you know, and I, I, I say this again in a, in a context of our own home, that Kathy was very good um, to me when, when I, uh, and she still is, when I come home from work, um, she generally gives me 10, 15, 20 minutes to just kind of collect myself and breathe before, before she talks to me about stuff that's happened in the day or asks me about my day because I'm just not in the frame of mind. I haven't been able to adjust yet. And so she could say the right thing, but it's the wrong time. And just the other night, we, were, we, were, we, we had an, an issue a couple weeks ago. And... Uh, uh, in the morning, I said to her, Kathy, is there something wrong? And she says, well, yeah, there's something that I, I wanted to say to you, but I didn't think last night was the right time because I didn't know how you would take it. So she shared it with him in the morning. Right time, right place. If she had shared it at night, it might not have been a good thing. I didn't get mad after all. It, was not, it wasn't a heavy. Um, but anyhow, so good speech is fitting. Proverbs, a man of knowledge uses words with restraint. Reckless words pierce like a sword. Have you ever been stabbed by somebody's words? A soft answer turns away wrath, 
but a harsh word stirs up anger. Everyone enjoys a fitting, a fitting reply. It's wonderful to say the right thing at the right time. Timely advice is lovely, like golden apples in a silver basket. Proverbs 29.20, there is more hope for a fool than for somebody who speaks without thinking. So our speech should be fitting. It should build up. And then the third thing that he says here is, is good speech gives grace to those who hear it. I love Proverbs because it hits on these things. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. Have you ever been so just overwhelmed by pressures and worries? And somebody comes along and they just speak a comforting word. He says, but a good word makes him glad. Here's a promise of God. Here's a note. Here's an encouragement. I'm praying for you. Oh, oh that just feels so good. Or, or kind words are like honey, sweet to the soul and healthy for the body. Or the tongue of the wise brings healing. There's so much in the Bible that talks about, about the, the use of our words. And, and why, why are we to put, replace words of, of, of cursing with words of blessing? Because another imperative, so that we do not grieve the Holy Spirit. I think that's where this fits. That when we gossip, when we slander, when we speak unkind words, when we tell half-truths, we grieve the Spirit of God who lives within us. And, and can you, do you, can, it's hard to fathom that. We can make God sad. We can, we, can, we can grieve the heart of God. We can cause Him pain and distress because we use our tongues in hurtful ways rather than in encouraging, fitting, and graceful ways. So part of our transformation, part of our apprenticeship is learning how to talk properly. Learning to get rid of old habits and learning to put on new habits. At the end of the day, God, I'm so sorry that I spoke like that. I'm so sorry that I didn't say the right thing in the right time. Would you forgive me? Would you help me rake it right tomorrow? And then we get up in the morning. God, when I speak to so-and-so today, help me speak in ways that build them up. Help me speak the right thing at the right time. Help me be like uh, uh, just a gracious word to them. Um, Lots more that we can say about that, but let's go to the last one. Kindness must replace hostility. Kindness must replace hostility. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Take them off. Take take them off. And rather, put on, um, uh, be kind to one another, Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's bitterness. Bitterness is a sour spirit, a smoldering resentment in our hearts. What is wrath? Wrath is passionate rage that comes when we've personally been offended. It, it, it's, it's like igniting gas with a spark. Some of you know that. Some of you have been recipients of that. It's just rage that just flies off the handle. On the other hand, he talks about anger. Anger is settled rage. It's this kind that comes to a slow boil. I won't talk to you for three days, and I won't look at you right. I'm just mad at you. And so there's just that slow boil. Some of us are like that. Clamor. Clamor are, 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 are violent public outspurts. It's raising our voices. It's when, it, 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 sometimes in the home, we, we, we just start yelling and screaming. That's clamor. 
I've seen it in church business meetings, never here, but I've seen it in church business meetings, and it shocks me. He said, put off clamor, slander, malice. Put those things off and replace them with kindness and tenderness and forgiveness. I just want to end by thinking about that last one. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. I think Christians really struggle with forgiveness. We really struggle with forgiving other people. I think part of the reason that we struggle is we confuse um, um, uh, forgiveness with pardon. I think that's one of the reasons we struggle. We think if I forgive them, I have to pardon them, and that erases all the consequences. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about forgiveness. I think, a, a, I think another reason why we have trouble with forgiveness is because we lose sight of God's forgiveness towards us. If you were to think about that, do, do you understand what God has forgiven you from? Do you reflect on your own sinfulness ever? Have you reflected on how much you ever offended God, how many of his commands you broke, how you, how you, how you raised your fist at him and said, I will not let you rule over me? how we spoke of him before we were Christians, what we did to other people, get a grasp of our own sort of sinfulness towards God? Do we understand the punishment that really was due for our sins? Do we understand what God really forgave us of and what we deserved had he not stepped in? And then do we get an idea of what it means that Jesus canceled our debt? Do we know what it means when the Bible talks about Jesus taking our place? paying the punishment for our sins, paying the cost of our sins, dying in our place. Do we understand that God absorbed that penalty? God absorbed the cost of our sinfulness. God took on himself in Christ the punishment for our sins. God absorbed it all so that we could have the righteousness of Christ placed on that. Do we understand what the Bible says when it says that God removes our sin as far as the east is from the west? That God takes our sin and he places it behind his back. That God blots out our sin. He he erases it. That God remembers our sin no more. If we understood the depth and the magnitude of God's forgiveness towards us, it would be much more difficult for us to look at somebody and say, I will never forgive you. I won't forgive you until you do this, this, and this, and this. I'm not going to forgive you because it costs me this. No. We would forgive as God forgave us in Christ Jesus. That's our example. And that's what we come to the Lord's table to remember. This is the foundation of all this transformation that takes place in our life. It's the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf.